One of the things I love about my old clips is seeing the preposterous ways I try and write around my lack of knowledge. For example, I found an article headlined, We Know What It Takes, from the December 22nd, 1989 Mailpack High School Chieftain. It's about the varsity wrestling team, and I wrote, With a diverse mixture of style and technique, along with the desire and dedication needed to reach the top, this year's wrestling squad seems destined for greatness. And were that just a high school habit, meh, no biggie. But for years, I tried writing around what I didn't know. I throw out all sorts of bullshit adjectives and verbs and analogies, presuming my brilliance would carry the load. In hindsight, I wish I knew then what I know now. A, 90% of people could see through my nonsense. And B, there's no substitute for hard-nosed reporting. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Kelsey Snow, the former Star Tribune Minnesota Twins beat writer, who now hosts the exceptional podcast, Sorry I'm Sad, that was inspired by the 2019 ALS diagnosis of her husband, Calgary Flames assistant GM Chris Snow. For you baseball geeks, Chris used to cover the Red Sox for the Boston Globe. This is episode number 237. Let's sling some yang. All right, Kelsey, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. I learned about your podcast and you in an interesting way, which is a friend of mine named Michael Lewis, not Moneyball Michael Lewis, (laughs) said, you need to listen to this Chris Jones interview um, on this podcast called Sorry I'm Sad. And I know Chris and mm-hmm. obviously a great writer and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. It was a masterclass in interviewing somebody, I thought, on your part. Thank you. And you basically, you know, your, your husband, Chris, who was a former Red Sox beat writer mm-hmm. um, and NHL, current NHL executive, has ALS and he's 40, 40, right? Yes, he's 40. And you sort of have decided, you have not worked as a sports writer. How many years now has it been? 10. Okay. So 10 years. And you basically decided in a weird way to hop back into media yeah. by not only chronicling your journey with Chris and everything that's going on, mm-hmm. but interviewing people who are going through absolutely awful experiences. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's really fascinating. That is basically your podcast. Your podcast which is <laughs> riveting. And I really uh-huh. mean that riveting is you talking to people who've gone through just some heartbreaking shit mm-hmm. in life. And in some ways you would think someone in your shoes would want to do the opposite. I'm just going to talk to people who are super happy and I'm going to keep my spirits up. I mean, I listened to the episode you did with the mother who lost her daughter. It took me three sort of walks to get through it because I just couldn't keep listening straight because it was so gut wrenching and also so beautiful. Mm. Why the fuck are you doing this? <laughs> it's really interesting because When Chris was first diagnosed, I had this very strong um, need to run away from everybody else's sadness. I could write about my own. And I started writing about Chris's illness and my feelings about it immediately before I even started sort of publishing blogs about it. I started writing about it just for my, my own self, but I really didn't want to take in anybody else's. Okay. I have enough sadness in my life. Everything I'm going to consume needs to be light and 
It doesn't need to add to this. I don't need to know somebody else's worst case scenario because I'm kind of trying to protect myself from my own worst case scenario. I've talked often about my, my sadness in those early days being this sort of really panicky feeling. Um, this feeling that maybe you still can get out of, maybe I can still escape this. And the longer we went removed from Chris's diagnosis, um, the more acceptance there is. And I've always kind of described it as sort of like settling into my sadness. It's just this thing that comes along with me now, everywhere I go. Um, it's a part of every bit of my life. And as I sort of made that move into that, I don't know, just this low hum of sadness always in my life. Uh, I started to really crave those stories instead of run from them. And at that point it was, I want to know how do you survive the thing you don't think you can survive? I want to hear how other people kept going when it felt like they couldn't keep going. And so that's really where it came from. And I was blogging. We kind of went public with Chris's diagnosis in December of 2019. He had been diagnosed in June and we really kind of slow played it. He was diagnosed in June. He joined this clinical trial that he remains in, in July, but he had a one in three chance of being on a placebo during that time. And the period of time that he could be on that placebo was six months. Well, the low end of his life expectancy for his specific type of ALS is six months, like a six to 12 month life expectancy. So those placebo, the worry about placebo was pretty consuming. And when we decided to finally go public, we felt pretty confident at that point that he had been on the drug. We still don't know. So there was a moment for me, we started in the trial in July and there was a moment for me in October, which was the first time he had been able to go on the ice with my son. He'd always been an assistant coach on our son's hockey teams. Um, but his right hand does not like do anything. He can't move any of his fingers. It's just like flopping around there. He couldn't do anything with it with a stick. So the flames equipment manager actually like sewed it into a fist and he kind of slides that right hand over the stick with that glove sewn together. Wow. And then we like sort of made it so the glove wouldn't fall off. I, I don't know, used a hair tie, hooked it to a brace that he uses that I got at a drugstore for cheap, like a carpal tunnel brace. And so that was the first time he could go on the ice. And I remember taking a video of him because he took a shot and it pinged off the crossbar. And that was when I realized, okay, so he had lost his hand. I knew it had moved up to his forearm. He had kind of like a freckle on his arm that I was like, we kind of watched, okay, where's the atrophy? If it goes above here, then we know. And uh, I was worried about his biceps and his shoulder because they had told us the next thing that would happen is he would stop being able to lift his hand, his arm over his head. And so when he shot that puck, that's when I thought, okay, now I know like he's maybe this will work. Maybe this drug will really work. And because of how quickly his dad, so Chris has familial ALS and most ALS is sporadic, 10 to 15% is familial. His dad had died not even a year before um, Chris was diagnosed. He also lost two uncles and a 28 year old cousin. And the speed at which their ALS progressed was so rapid that for this, his progression to kind of seemingly really stop once he started that trial just made us very confident that he was on the drug. So is his, has his progression stop? Like, what does it no. look like? Yeah, it was. So he had really no progression from July of 2019 to April of 2020. 
And so for that period, we thought, well, maybe this is the magic bullet. Like maybe he'll be just a one-handed guy the rest of his life. Uh, now I'd say that the the disease hasn't hasn't stopped in his right arm. Like his he's lost most of his biceps now, but it has slowed so much because when he started on the drug, his hand and his forearm were already gone. So the fact that he still has his shoulder triceps um, and we're two and a half years later is pretty pretty remarkable. But outside of that original sort of limb where it presented, we hadn't seen any other progression until it was like the day after Easter and we were sledding because you still sled here on the day after Easter. <laughs> you decided and, to live there. That was a year call. <laughs> well, there's only so many teams, Jeff. You yeah. got to take what you could get. Anyway, I also grew up in South Dakota and we lived in Minnesota. This is no different for us. So I took a picture of him and our daughter and you know how sometimes you just take a picture and you think, oh, that's He's just, it was a bad moment. I caught it, him making a weird face. And I was like, smile normal. You had a weird smile. And so I took the picture again, same thing. Then I, and I'm like, mm. so I took it one more time. And then I thought, okay, shit. So he has smile was a bit just kind of his, the right side of his smile wasn't as big. Like it was just drooping a bit. And so at that point, that was a pretty pan, another kind of experience of that panicky feeling of sadness because it really just felt like he was going through the diagnosis all over again. Because we had, even if we didn't really want to admit it to ourselves, sort of let ourselves think, maybe we'll just live in this place forever. And that started a pretty quick uh, decline in his facial muscles. So he uh, now cannot make any facial expressions. Um, you know, he has a friend. <laughs> You can probably kill me for saying this. Who calls him Baba Gump? <laughs> because his bottom lip just hangs down here because he just has no, his total, all of his muscles have atrophied, um, including like his soft palate. So your soft palate is what basically keeps in the back of your mouth and the roof of your mouth in the back air from going through your sinuses. And his is sort of not, it doesn't do that naturally. It hangs down now. So his voice can sound nasally, which is why, for instance, he was on the Red Sox Astros broadcast on Lou Gehrig Day this year, and he he did it lying down because when he lies down, his soft palate just not like when gravity's not working against it, his voice is a lot better. So he did it lying down, which was very funny. Um, and then that also led to uh, atrophy of his swallowing muscles, so he can't really swallow most things. He drinks coffee in the morning. Um, milkshakes are okay. Some food is okay, like oysters, weirdly. Um, but he has a, he got a feeding tube a year ago this month. So he doesn't really eat anymore and he can't use his right hand and he sounds different. But really, aside from that, he can do everything he did before. He can't tie his shoes and refuses to buy slip-ons. <laughs> so I tie his shoes every day. I used to have to cut up his food, but now he can't eat. So I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> Um, but otherwise, yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of where we're at. He gets a spinal tap once a month. That's how this drug is administered. Um, and then we just live in this sort of really weird, uncertain place where he's supposed to be dead already and he's not cured, but he's also just really living a good quality life still. Does your day-to-day -day life, like, do you feel like you have a dark cloud following you day-to-day? -day? I... I think it depends on the day. It depends on my mood. Um, 
I try really hard to sort of come back to a place of thinking about what I have instead of what I've lost and sort of what I stand to lose. And some days I'm a lot better at that than other days. Uh, but I think that gratitude is uh, a really important thing. And I also try to have the perspective that, you know, we really are pretty much one of the luckiest, if not the luckiest ALS family to come along. Um, and I try not to forget that, you know, it's hard on the kids. Uh, it's hard on me. It's hard on Chris. What we have to try really, really hard to focus on what we have today, because really any of the other stuff just makes it kind of overwhelming. One of the things that's said a lot in life is you really need to focus on the now. Like that's something mm -hmm. people say all the time. Yeah. It's so preposterously hard to just mm -hmm. focus on. It is almost impossible to just, sure. I'm going to focus on the now. I'm going to focus on the now. Have you figured out how to focus on the now? Uh, I am going to say again, some days I, I have, and it's, you're right. It's very hard and it's impossible to do all the time. And I think that the, the important thing to do in focusing on the now is recognize that some days now sucks. And I think my best like learned tool for dealing with my own sadness and my own fears and my own anxiety about Chris's health is when those sort of waves crash over me, I just have to give in to them. I have to kind of let myself feel it for as long as I need to feel it with the knowledge now that I'll survive. I love this uh, author, Edith Eager. She's a Holocaust survivor. She wrote a book called The Choice. She says a lot, feelings aren't fatal. And I try to remind myself of that. Like this feels horrible, but I'm going to get through it. There's another side. I can come out the other side. And so that's part of being, being present is also recognizing that sometimes your present is pretty shitty and you can get through it by focusing on the fact that by, by just trusting, not focusing on, but trusting the fact that you'll come out the other side. So being present is a challenge for sure. It's a challenge for everybody. And there's this period in illness where, or, or whenever you have like some sort of traumatic thing happen and you, and you survive it and, or even you're sick and you get this diagnosis and then you, you hit this part where everything becomes so clear and so easy because all the other stuff falls away. Now this is all that matters, you know, spending time with our kids, spending time together. This is all that matters. And you do that for a period of time. And then you remember, okay, we have to do laundry and our kids are going to bicker. And you and I are, you know, I'm you and I speaking, me and Chris, like we're still going to have disagreements. We're still married. Marriage is still hard. Uh, all of those things. I think that's one of the harder points because you feel like you should have this massive amount of clarity and that you should be able to just now always be present, always approach life with gratitude. And right. then you realize you just can't always do that. And I think that's what, that was, that's still a hard thing for me because even we'll be, somebody will be arguing and I'm, and in my head, I'm going, knock it off. We know better than this, you know, but it's just life. I'm always fascinated by the expectations of feelings. <laughs> Why don't you feel this way? Why don't you feel this way? You should be feeling this way. You should be feeling this way. You, Kelsey, you should be mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. How, why are you arguing about the laundry? Your husband has ALS and mm -hmm. it just never aligns with reality. 
And I think we do that to ourselves. Worst of all, I don't really do it to, to the kids. I don't really, well, I don't know. You'd have to ask Chris if he thinks I do that. He probably does, but I definitely do it to myself. I definitely, um, minimize my own sort of grief to myself because I tell myself you should feel grateful. Look what you have. Your husband is still here. Your husband is still going to work every day. Your husband can still take care of the kids. Your life isn't so consumed by this disease that I can pop, you know, do this podcast with you because I don't have to spend my life 24 seven caring for Chris. Uh, and that's a different story than most other ALS families 29 months into a diagnosis. And so I minimize my own grief a lot because I try to I tell myself, be grateful for what you have. Okay. You're probably going to disagree with me. I actually think okay. that's bullshit a little bit. Like I think you're allowed to have your grief. There is a reality, yes. which is your husband has a really shitty disease mm-hmm. and it's not fair. And life fucking sucks sometimes like a lot. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like the pressure to be like, think about how lucky you are. Think about my mom always used to say, we would read a fire about a fire in the newspaper. Yeah. My mom would say, think about how lucky you are. And I'm like, yeah, but it doesn't take away from their suffering. I think you're allowed to be a human and not always. Oh, feel- I completely agree with you. I, can, I, I, I don't at all disagree with you. And I would never, ever say that to any of my friends. To any other person, I would say all grief is valid. Uh, David Kessler, who wrote a book, uh, wrote the books with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on like on death and dying. Um, he, he, he says this great thing. The, the worst grief is always your own. It doesn't matter what your grief is about. It's yours. And so it sucks. Right. And I would never say that to anybody else, but it's just one of those things we do to ourselves. Right. And in my best moments, I say, no, you get to have this. And in other moments, I do sometimes need to just tell myself, you know, get up, keep going. What you've got is pretty good right now. And it's about, it's trying to find a balance of that, right? Here right now in America, a land that you, I would argue, maybe wisely escaped. <laughs> um, it's a shit show, right? It's a shit show. And especially during, I'll be slightly political, during the Trump years, it was a shit show. And yeah. it's still kind of a shit show. Yeah. Me and about a million people I know were just miserable. Like I was miserable. I was a miserable, mm-hmm. unhappy human being. And I wonder when you go through something like you're going through, and you, you obviously you're from America, you have friends in America, blah, blah, blah. And you hear people complaining. Are you ever just like, shut the fuck up. You should just be happy for what you have. Like in that regard, oh, Trump is ruining America or Biden is ruining whatever people think. Are you ever like, get your fucking perspective here a little bit or no? No, no. I mean, my political views will, will probably come out in this, but I mean, that was horrible. That's how I felt about it. It was hard for me to watch it from here. Um, you know, uh, I still feel very invested. Canadians are very invested in American politics. We get network television from the U.S. up here. And so we watch a lot of I would say that it's easier really to follow Canadian or American news than it even can be sometimes to follow. Also, that's probably just me because I'm I'm American. I seek it out. But uh, no, again, I, I do believe truly that the greatest grief is always your own. I don't I don't. I have a friend who I've who's husband is much farther along in, in ALS than Chris. I have another friend whose husband died a few years ago from ALS. And I have a lot of sort of survivor's guilt, which is a weird thing to say, considering he still has this disease. He still has losses from it about them. And I remember one time about communicating with them, what's going on in my life. I, and I remember one time kind of apologizing to one of them for it. And she wrote back to me and she said, that's not how my brain works. And I feel that same way. Doesn't mean that I don't 
am not aware of how I'm communicating with her because of my own stuff, but I would never feel that way with somebody communicating with me about something that is upsetting to them. So I have a friend who has a very, very, very bad MS at this point. And Mm -hmm. he used to be in a lot of MS groups online where he would chat Mm -hmm. with different people with MS. And he said after a while, it just brought him down more than it was giving him anything that hearing all these horror stories about MS were kind of crushing his soul. And I wonder for you, when you hear, when you have, you have friends, obviously, who are going through spouses with AOS and maybe have mm-hmm. AOS, is it helpful for you or, or sometimes a negative to hear sort of progression stories? Uh, at the beginning, again, during that part where I was really running from sad stuff, I am thinking in my head, especially since we have the trial, okay, we're different. We have a different story. It's going to be different for us. I didn't want to know any of that. Um Chris specifically didn't really have, didn't want to know how other people in his trial were doing um, because he really wanted to just hold on to his positivity and he wanted to hold on to how he felt, how he was doing. And he didn't want anybody else's, maybe somebody who wasn't doing it as well. He didn't want to know. Uh, I don't feel that way now at all. Uh, I've even had people say that just about the podcast, right? I've had friends when I went to start the podcast, say, just be careful. Don't sort of get swamped by other people's sadness. And, you know, it took you three goes to finish that episode with Heather, which I completely understand. And every person who has listened to that episode told me the same thing. I did that conversation in one sitting in my, in this room right here. And I don't ever feel, it's a very strange thing. I don't ever feel heavier after those conversations. I always feel lighter. I don't, it's a weird thing to say because it's such a heavy, these topics are so heavy. It's just that sense that you're not in it alone. I think that really can just buoy you. And so that's kind of how I feel about it. Even, even in situations where the outcome is the worst case scenario. Wait, so the woman you interviewed was named Heather Roy. She's Canadian and her daughter, Evelyn uh, was 11 when she died of cancer. There was a moment in your podcast where you were talking to her about the power of someone who went through this moving on. I lost my daughter, but I'm able to move on and I'm able to have a life and I'm able. And there was a moment that just freaking grabbed me by the throat when you talked about Chris's ALS and your, the, his family's history of ALS and almost the realization that this could be theoretically a hereditary disease and you have kids. And here's a quick excerpt from that episode. Chris is ALS genetic. Yeah. So my kids might have this gene. So knowing that you can keep going. Sorry. After you lost Evelyn. It's really important to me. Yeah. I understand that. that I think this is the worst nightmare for me. If I lost Chris, I would be devastated. It would change me forever. But I know I would keep going because I have my kids. Yeah. The thought of losing my kids. Mm-hmm. That I'm not sure I could survive. And so the, what you're giving people is so important. And so I'm going to get myself together here. <laughs> but like I want losing, to say thank you. Losing a child is like, you know, I often say like when your baby is born... And you hold that baby for the first time. 
you see an entire life that baby grows up, that baby gets married and has babies of their own. Yeah. And you get to be like a grandma and they like these kids go to university. When you were talking about that, it almost felt like that was the first time that occurred to you. Like it was like this really like insanely powerful little moment in that Mm. podcast. Um, The comfort of laying all your emotions out there. Like my wife, she's always like, please, like I emote way too much online on podcasts, everything. (laughs) Like, can you just stop? Is there no part of you that's like, maybe, maybe I should hold back. Maybe I should Mm. not emote so much. Maybe I'm putting too much out there. Maybe, maybe, is Chris ever like, maybe you should just, you know, blah, 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 (laughs) maybe too much. Uh, I almost took that part out because I thought maybe it was too much for people to hear that. It's a really raw part. It was not the first time I've thought about that. Chris's disease is absolutely hereditary. Uh, They're making great gains in familial ALS, his type specifically, and neurologists have put their hands on my knee and looked me in the eye and said, your kids are going to be okay. But there's no evidence of that so far. And I don't know if they have this. And so Heather is from Calgary and I have followed her on her social media since Evelyn died. And it was not the first time I've thought that for sure. The amount of emotion that came out when I said it, I did not expect, I guess is the best way to say it. Uh, But I did think about, I think the way that I said, I texted a friend of mine who loves podcasts. And so she's a good one for me to bounce things off of. And I said, is it acceptable for the host to ugly cry? (laughs) And and she was like, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I thought about, okay, should I take was that part too much? Um, but ultimately, I think that I just think that everybody has those things down deep. And and are we doing ourselves any service to not show those parts to each other? Probably not. It, I don't think that it does anything but, but help to see somebody else. It's hard to say to see somebody else in pain, but to know that other people have a pain that sort of reaches these depths that maybe you think nobody else could possibly feel this way. Also, you can't see an ugly cry. So we can just hear an ugly cry. So we didn't, but it was pretty ugly. (laughs) (laughs) Like I could hardly talk. So you have Heather Roy and she comes to your studio and you know what you went through. It wasn't that long ago. How do you avoid any temptations to sort of interrupt or interject? Cause I feel like we all have that inclination where we want to, Oh, blah, 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 or blah, 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 or blah, blah, blah. Maybe it's my Midwestern politeness. Could be. I don't know. Uh, I actually, I actually worry about that a lot myself that I do that, that I do interrupt. And so it's interesting to hear you say that you don't think I do because I'll listen to an interview and I'll say, oh, I cut them off. I should have let them talk because this is constant battle. And as you know, this as, as an interviewer between letting them, letting a person get to a place on their own and and, and also steering the conversation in a way that, that you saw it happening. Now, I am a chronic over-preparer. So I had, I don't know, six, probably had six pages of notes for my conversation with Heather. And 
that's probably mostly for me, whether or not I use them, uh, I think is different. I, I just need to know that I have in my head things that I, I do want to talk about, but I don't, I don't stay, I guess, really strongly married to them. If it doesn't make sense to take the conversation there. And I think the thing about that conversation with Heather, that is the best lesson in that is that I never asked, I never had to ask Heather about those last moments with Evelyn. She went there on her own. And I think that oftentimes, especially in my podcast, like, you know what you're signing up for, you, you know what you're here to talk about. And, and so I think me overthinking how to get somebody to talk about that is not necessary. And if I can let them, I also think with the the podcast, the power of a podcast is that I can edit things. And so if somebody goes off on a tangent, okay, let them, I have time to sit here. If you want to talk for two, two and a half hours, and then I can go back and figure out sort of which parts mattered the most for the time I want it to last. And I often just let them last a very long time because nobody is telling me what to do. Wait, I'm going to echo something Chris Jones said. And he said, um, and I hadn't read your work. And he's like, uh, it's like, you're a freaking great writer. And you are a great writer. You can freaking flat out write, seriously. And I just want to say, you wrote um, on your blog, you wrote uh, two months ago, you wrote, early in the summer, I dreamt my son was dying. My perfect, beautiful boy. I was helpless, aware even in my my subconscious that this was too much. My own desperation jolted me awake. I opened my eyes and heard myself saying, I cannot do this. I blinked and looked around the dark room. My heart was pounding, my breath shallow and fast. It's okay, I told myself, it was a dream. He's okay, he's not sick, it was a dream. I looked at Chris breathing steadily next to me and I remembered, I woke up from a dream about my son dying to the reality that my husband is sick, that he has a terminal illness he might have passed on to our children. That is the nightmare I cannot escape. I stared at the ceiling and told myself not to drift off for a while or the dream would start again. I picked up my phone and tried to mindlessly scroll through social media, but my eyes were too heavy. I fell asleep and slipped back into the darkness. I returned home from somewhere. I knew I was trying to find a way to save him. It was late. We were in a hotel. I walked in and found him curled up in the bathtub, sick and sad and slipping away from me. I picked him up and wrapped a small body in a blanket. Chris walked in. We will make him comfortable, I said. We will take him home and love him and let him go. And then again, my eyes opened. Outside, the birds were chirping, but the sky was dark. I got up, walked down the hall, and opened the door to his room. I stood and watched his chest rise and fall. I touched his warm body. I exhaled. I climbed back in bed, but sleep was out of the question. My heart could not handle part three of this nightmare. This isn't probably where you thought this question was going to go, but... Okay. Is there an alternate universe where you're in your X year covering something for someone or you're writing long features for ESPN or you're blah, blah, blah. Like, do you ever think like, regardless of ALS and everything you've gone through, Mm -hmm. there was a journalism path that you were going to be on. And do you ever like, again, not about AOS. Like, do you ever sort of regret giving up the mainstream writing? That's a good question. Hmm. I don't know if regret is the right word. Uh, So we moved up here right after I had our son and he was five weeks old. When we moved to Calgary, Chris had been working for the wild. The team had been sold. The new owner had uh, fired or let go, whatever semantics, the 
general manager who had hired Chris. And Chris, as you said, was a journalist. So he didn't have the sort of network. He had one guy who gave him a chance. And now he had to decide what he was going to do. He, so he, he didn't get renewed and he was unemployed that for a year. And then he got, he got the job offer to come up here. And right away I said, can we live in Minnesota and you can go to Calgary. It's a short flight from Minnesota and I can keep writing. And no, the flame said they, they wanted him to be up here. And at the same time, I had been doing baseball for four and a half seasons and I, it's, I was done. I, I knew that I wanted to be a mom and I knew that I could not be a mom in the way I wanted, uh, and be a baseball writer. And my career had not evolved to the point, um, where I had another option. Uh, it wasn't like people were banging on my door to say, Hey, come write features for us. I had a lot of my own insecurities about my writing. I didn't necessarily, I didn't, I still don't really think I'm that good of a writer. Um, and and certainly when I was covering baseball, I was so new. I shouldn't have been good. Like I, you know, somebody saw something in me and I got some great internships and I got better, but, but anyway, the, the, I guess the answer is regret is not the right word. Uh, I miss, I miss writing. I missed writing and I didn't know what that would look like for me. And I think because it was such a, it was such a divorce from that person. I was like, I, had a, I quit my job, had a baby and moved to a new country all within eight weeks. And so that person was just, it wasn't, I just felt like I wasn't even that person anymore in any way. And so it wasn't as much about regret as this is just a different part of my life. And then I knew that I would want to have a job again someday when my kids got older. Um, and I, I don't, I still don't have a job, but I do this. Um, and, and yeah, so I guess I really forgot that I loved writing until I started writing again, even though what I write about now is really hard. I forgot how satisfying and, um, I don't know how, what, an, what, how good it feels to, to write something that you feel proud of. When you got out of Kansas, were you the typical, like we are kind of ambitious, I'm going to be writing for Sports Illustrated or ESPN or whatever one day, and this is going to be my life, and I'm going to be in press boxes and blah 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 blah. Was that Kelsey at AIDS? No, no. I my first internship was the Duluth News Tribune, and the next summer, that summer, I remember going for a walk with another intern, and we we're talking about how random it is who gets hired for what internships, and I said, I'm just going to apply to them all. I'm going to apply to the LA Times, and I got the LA Times the next summer, actually in a very interesting way. Chris had been in LA the summer before me interning. I got to LA and they were, they said, Oh, we had an intern last year. He left early because he got a job halfway through the summer covering um, the NHL in Minnesota. And that was Chris, but I had no idea. But anyway, the funny part of the story is that they had asked him for sort of some recommendations for that next summer when I ultimately got the job for people to hire for their internship. And he recommended, do you know Chico Harlan? Yeah. He recommended Chico, who had just graduated from Syracuse, and Chico actually accepted it. And then a while after accept, accepting it, got a full-time job and so then turned it down. And Chris was really sort of, come on, Chico, I put, I put myself out there to tell them to, and you turned it down. And the only reason I got it was because Chico turned it down. <laughs> Funny. And then the next summer I got the Globe, which is where I met Chris. And if I hadn't got the Times, I wouldn't have gotten the Globe. So it's crazy. <laughs> I just want to say, 
I was, um, I was a student at the University of Delaware. I applied for an internship at the National Tennessean. There was a woman named Leah Stewart who had interned there the year before. They offered her the internship again for the second summer in a row. She turned it down. They picked me. I go to the Tennessean. I get hired by Sports Illustrated office. You just, these little moments in life, yeah. right? They just blow your mind sometimes. They do. They absolutely do. It's just, it's crazy. It's really crazy how that all, how that all happened. And then I got to the Globe to interview for the internship and they, and they said, oh, well, we're really trying to get a young staff. We just hired, they had just hired uh, my good friend, Emily Benjamin. Um, she'd been working in zones and they just hired her into the, the main sports department. And then we just hired this, uh, we just hired this young kid, Chris Snow. He's, he grew up here, but he's been, I was, this guy is everywhere I go. Now his mom would have told you that I had been like <laughs> talking to Chris Snow. <laughs> but yeah, then we met not, not long after that. So wait, random question. what do you like about the guy? Like you're, so you're this intern at the Boston Globe and here's Chris Snow, this young reporter. Why? Yeah. I think it was pretty clear immediately that we had sort of similar a similar, similar values. Uh, and he just had this way of making really sort of average things really sort of seems fun and exciting. And I grew up in a place where people are very, you know, humble and polite. And here was this like very confident, very outgoing sort of, you know, East coast, brash guy and it was just different than anyone I'd really ever known and uh but yeah I mean I loved I loved how he I loved how confident he was I loved how um I loved how good he was at his job that's certainly like Chris was a phenomenal writer and uh, I loved that uh not why I fell in love with him but yeah definitely the thing that I loved this summer that we started dating he made me this list of, of things at somewhere I've been one, I've been wanting to find it. He wrote out this list of things like that we had to do before I left Boston, you know, all these Boston things. Cause that's where he's from. Uh, those are the things that I love about him. Those sort of little things that he values. Was your family like, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> Actually, this is a really funny story. My parents came that first summer that I was in Boston as I interned two summers in a row in Boston. And the first summer was the summer I met Chris and my parents came to Boston and visited. They came to a game at Fenway and we had just kind of started dating there. This is closed now, but there used to be this restaurant right across the street from Fenway, Boston beer works. And we went to beer works after the game, had a beer. And my dad is this sort of farmer from South Dakota, lived in the same 10 miles radius, his entire life, huge, like Paul Bunyan hands. One time my high school boyfriend told me, your dad could strangle me with one hand. <laughs> and I said, yeah, he wants you to know that. So anyway, he reaches out his giant farmer hand, shakes, shakes Chris's hand at the end of the night and says, well, guess I'll never see you again. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's a good one. No. So yeah, they, they, no, they were, they, they, they've always, they've always liked Chris, but that was a funny moment for sure. <laughs> did you think you would have a life in Boston? Like, did you view your future as a Bostonian? No, because I, because <clears throat> That second summer, I went back to intern at the Globe and we thought, oh, we'll 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 get to spend the summer together before I even got there. He started interviewing for that for the job with the wild. So I was on my way there and actually was driving from South Dakota to Boston, went up through Canada and he was in Toronto for a Red Sox Blue Jays series. And the wild happened to be there and he was having an interview then. So I hadn't even gotten there and he'd already like started to get another job and leave. So. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I ended up living in his apartment that summer by myself. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my son Emmett, who started working today as a CIT at a local summer camp. So Emmett, how's that going? It's okay. Why just okay? Well, it's a good amount of work, and I get paid nothing, and the bosses are sort of critical, and I'm not even sure what I get out of it. Emmett, seriously, this is the point in the ad where you're supposed to say this podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You've done this a million times. What the hell is wrong with you? Wait, wait, what were you talking about? My unpaid, unsatisfying job. Oh, right. Let me ask you a final thing. You wrote, um, you wrote just a freaking fantastic piece for the Boston Globe. They fell in love at Fenway Park after a terminal diagnosis. They came home and it's about you and Chris and your, your kids experience of throwing out the first pitch at Fenway. We alluded to this briefly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really great. I, I actually put out all 11 pages and uh, you wrote um, when I was 21 years old, I fell in love at Fenway Park. I didn't meet my husband in the stands or the beer line or during a shared smile over sweet Caroline. Instead, we fell in love in the press box in the summer of 20, uh, 2005. I was a 21 year old intern in the globe sports department and Chris Snow was a 23-year-old newly minted Red Sox beat writer. We first met at the White Horse Tavern on Brighton Avenue in Austin. My fellow Globe intern and roommate for the summer, Adam Kilgore, introduced us. It wasn't long before Chris started driving me to Fenway. Adam noted subtly, Snow has never offered me a ride to work. <laughs> it's really, the whole thing is just beautiful. Like, beautiful. You are, I'm not kidding. You're a fucking great writer. Like, great <laughs> Thank you. Great I'll writer. take it. <laughs> yeah. And um, I don't know, how this piece come about? Like, how this even happened? Mm. So Chris is, I would say Chris, Chris hasn't felt like he's kind of felt a bit untethered from home for a long time. And he grew up in Boston, but uh, not long after he finished high school, his parents sold their house and they lived elsewhere. Uh, New Hampshire, they have a house on a, they had a house on the lake. Then both his parents died. Then we moved, you know, we moved from Boston to Minnesota to here and we just, he just didn't really feel super connected to home when home didn't have a home to go to when we were in Boston. Right. So there, that even kind of made it even more, more sort of pronounced. And after, and it was the morning after the first pitch, we were driving, we were driving down, I think maybe, maybe it was common. I don't even know which road it was. Anyway, we were driving down a road, one of the, you know, sort of really idyllic Boston streets and windows down. And he just said, I feel like this is my home again. And it was such an amazing feeling that day. Um, I'm going to cry. It's a very strange thing to really realize how much the support of people you are never going to meet and don't know at all can impact you. But when we walked onto that field and they and the whole place stood up and, you know, they had the jumbotron and they had his whole story up there, you know, Melrose native, Chris Snow. Um, it was just such a powerful moment. And then we walked off down the third baseline. And as we walked off, it was like a wave. Every person we walked by stood up, cheered, you know, hand to their heart, you know, it was just amazing. It just felt really, really organic and really powerful. Um, and so I just had this in my head about this notion of going home and how powerful those places can be for us. 
And I don't think I had really revisited myself, the power of that summer for me and, and the power of, and of Boston for me, how much I loved that city. Because again, we weren't, I, I lived there for two summers. It wasn't a long period of time for me specifically. But yeah, I just started kind of playing around with that. And then I know Alex Spear, he was, he was writing when I was, he's the, the Red Sox beat writer for the Globe now. And he was covering the Red Sox. I can't remember for who, when I was interning there. And so Chris and I both knew Alex. Alex is a top-notch human. And I just texted him and I said, do you think the Globe would want this story? Like a story about kind of coming home and our day at Fenway. And, and he said, yeah, I think so. So then I got in touch with Matt, the sports editor. And that was that. Somewhere out there, there's an editor because I've had bad editors. So uh, there's, this, uh, there's this woman, she interned to the Globe years ago and her husband used to cover the Red Sox. And now he works in the NHL and- <laughs> He's coming home to throw the first pitch and he has ALS and he's using a hand that he doesn't normally use. And he's throwing out the first pitching out of standing ovation and they've had this incredible homecoming and she wants to write a piece. Yeah. I don't really think that's a good idea. I don't, I don't, really, see the, I don't really see that as a good story. I'd like, yeah. I want to find that. Editor. Yeah. Uh, Who would have turned that down? <laughs> the first pitch threw with his left hand, correct? He's yes. trained himself to throw lefty. Yep. I saw the first pitch better than Anthony Fauci or 50 cents. <laughs> Both who throw righty. I mean, low bar, he would say. But uh, (laughs) yeah, you know what? The funny thing is he was like he was nervous about it. He really wanted to throw a really good pitch. It was so hot that day. It was like 96 degrees, humid as hell. And and, you know, and and nerves. Right. But Cohen threw before him. And that was actually Cohen's 10th birthday. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he's, his birthday is the day after Chris's. So Chris had turned 40 the day before. And when Cohen threw that ball and he, I mean, Cohen's a lefty and he wanted to throw from the rubber and he threw a legitimate strike. Like the catcher started to stand up to like prepare for where the ball was going to go. And he crouched back down and caught the ball and Cohen's head was on a swivel. He turned around, looked at me, had this face like, oh, I can't believe I just did that. And I knew after that it didn't matter what Chris did. Cause that was the moment. That was the moment. Let me ask you a last, last question. Sure. You going through this experience and now sort of also opening yourself up via your podcast to the grief experiences of others. Mm-hmm. And I feel like most people really struggle when it comes to approaching, yeah. respecting, dealing with people. You know, there's an awkwardness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, what do I, I'm just not going to call blah, 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 blah. Yes. What do you want from people? Mm-hmm. Uh, honesty and showing up. So I am not a person, despite the fact that I have, you know, I made it my career choice to value words. I'm not really a person who gets really upset when people say the wrong thing. I think that if we are saying to people, we need to talk more about grief, we need to show up for people who are grieving and then saying, but here are all the things you can do wrong then people aren't going to do it. They're just going to say, I can't, I'm so scared. I'm going to say the wrong thing that I won't say anything at all. And the worst thing you can do for somebody is that. Uh, Now, other people have different takes on this. The other thing I think that is that if we have these conversations where we talk about things that work for us and don't work for us, then it's just being able to see it kind of, parachuting into a conversation, maybe in a podcast that I'm doing where we're talking about these things so that you can get a sense of what people do want to hear. 
sort of just normalizing the conversation. And so I think that's part of it, but, but definitely honesty goes a long way. I don't know what to say, but I love you. And I'm thinking about you. Um, you know, I'm worried that, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to press. I don't, I, I just, I'm wondering how you're doing, but whatever. I don't want to put the onus on you to have the conversation. So I'm not quite sure what to say here. Like I, there's no problem for me with you saying that. I tend to think personally, I like statements better than questions. Like if you're asking me a question, then you're, you're asking something of me. You, how are you, Kelsey? How is Chris doing? Okay. Well, maybe I'm in a place where I want to have that conversation. I, I wrote in recently kind of in a thing on my Patreon to think about why you're asking that question. Are you asking that for them or are you asking that for your own curiosity? And if you're asking that question for your own curiosity, that's not really fair to the person going through it because that's going to stay with them. Maybe they were going through their day and they weren't in that headspace. And now you've asked them that. And now they have to walk away from that thinking about how they asked it. How are they doing? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You've opened a can of worms for them. So I tend to like statements. I'm thinking of you. That's usually enough for me. I just want people to not, I think the hardest, the most scary thing for me going into this was I didn't want was feeling like I'd be alone, you know? And even the farther we get into this, it's like, are people going to get sick of this? Now he's okay. He still has this. Are people going to get sick of this? Are they sick of me? Are they sick of my sadness? And I think about that a lot. And you, you asked, um, you asked a question some, that, that made me think of this, which, which is just that I spend a lot of time. I think it was when you're asking about how much should I show people? And I often think, people must be so sick of reading my stuff because it's just so goddamn sad. And maybe I need to be more gracious and maybe I need to be more positive and more hopeful in these, in these things that I'm writing. But for whatever reason, that's how I process. And then it's like the nitty gritty of my feelings comes out of my writing. That's not necessarily how I project when I meet you or when I'm talking to you today. I'm not like, you know, I'm not like sadness from inside out all the time. Uh, but yeah, I just think that show up, don't stop showing up and show up more in small ways. It's not, this doesn't have to be a big thing. You know, one of my sisters does this really well and, and she'll just text me and say, Hi, I'm just thinking of you guys and I love you. And sometimes I have enough headspace to really give her a good response and kind of tell her how we're doing or whatever. And sometimes I don't, sometimes I think I want to have that. So I don't respond because I don't have the time in that moment. And then I forget. And then maybe like a few weeks later, I'll get another message from her that says, just thinking about you, but it's never like you didn't write me back or is everything okay? Because I hadn't heard from you. There's never a guilt thing associated with it. It's just, I'm thinking about you. So I tend to like that. I mean, if you're specifically looking for how to help people who are going through something, like you want to do something tangible, do it. Don't ask about it. Don't say, what can I do for you? Like, actually, some of the people who have showed up for us in the biggest way are Chris's friends from Syracuse. And last year when he was going through really all of his stuff with swallowing, like one night they literally ordered every single thing on the menu the night before his feeding tube surgery. They, they found a restaurant in Calgary that was like, you know, had good ratings and they literally ordered one of everything on the menu and had it sent to our house. 
they found like a French bakery that would sell frozen croissants and fresh things. And they had this woman shows up at our house, with like two bagfuls. And it's not, could I do this? It's, will you be home at this time? We ordered this stuff and it's coming to your house. We're going to get you pizza tonight. Are you going to be home? What do you like? You had to be crying when the bags of pastry show up at your house, no? I know. I mean, they're so awesome. And you just don't expect that from a bunch of these <laughs> journalist dudes. <laughs> you know, they all like the, the exposure that I had to them when they were young. They were all pretty like and they were all so competitive with each other. But they've all just they've all just become such great humans. Because <laughs> they're a bunch of dicks who went to Syracuse and that place. Exactly. Like and I can't even imagine how like competitive that was during that period. Cause we're talking about, you know, some pretty top notch journalists and they, they've all had incredible careers. Uh, let me ask you a final, final, final question. It's good. Let's just say it's right before it's a couple years ago, pre ALS diagnosis and the, uh, the New York times cause <laughs> we want you to cover the Yankees. We're going to pay you uh, 300,000 a year, but you got to move to New York. Are you doing it? No. I think I'm done standing around in the locker rooms and, and asking people again about their arm slot for their whatever pitch and their sore shoulders. I I don't have any desire to do that. I want to tell stories that feel really impactful. I I think I found a way to do that now that I never would have expected before. Um, Even when I started my blog, the podcast was not ever a thought in my mind. Um, That didn't really come about until I got uh, so many messages from people saying, Oh, when you wrote about this, that's exactly how I feel, but I haven't been able to kind of say it out loud. And I thought people are looking for more spaces where we're talking about these things. And that was where the idea for the podcast came. But no, that's not for me. I don't know what my writing life looks like in the future, but I know that that was a really a part of my life that I was amazing. Like that is ridiculous to get that job out of college first job. Like that was my end goal job, cover the twins. My dad's going to be watching. He's going to get the newspaper. He'll read all my stuff. Uh, And I did that. And then actually that's a hard thing to like hit that thing as your first thing, because then the next is, well, now what do I do? And like every journalist, you feel like you have no other marketable skills, (laughs) you know? So that's the other challenges. Okay. Now I'm up here in Canada. Every sports team in the city is owned by the Flames. So that feels like a giant conflict of interest. I'm not really interested in doing that anyway. But so you have to find a next act. And I certainly didn't see this being my next act. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm done covering baseball. No matter whatever happens in your life, you can always say that you saw Orlando Hudson play second base for the Twins. And nobody can take that away from you, Kelsey. Yes, that's true. Yeah, that's Uh-oh. true. Nobody can take that away from me. <laughs> Seriously. Huge admirer of your podcast, huge admirer of what you're offering. I just think it's important and valuable and real and raw. And, and uh, I've become a fan. So I, uh, oh, I appreciate you. doing this so much. Thank you. I think we should make a shirt that say, keep emoting. <laughs> I don't think it's a bad idea. I love it. I thank today's guest, Kelsey Snow, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Kelsey on Twitter at Kelsey S. Writes. Visit her website, KelseySnowWrites.com, and listen to Sorry I'm Sad wherever podcasts stream. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and leaving a nice review. I make no money for doing this, and I depend on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.